Good morning. I'll be reading this morning from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It will be up there, but I encourage you to read along one way or another. There's Bibles in your pews, there's Bibles in your phones, and there's the screen up there. So I turned to consider wisdom. Oh, I'm on verse 12, I'm sorry. Chapter 2 and verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of, the wise is, for of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool man, uh, a wa whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him who can eat, uh, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. May God bless his word to our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would open our hearts to be taught by your Holy Spirit this morning. And as your word and your Holy Spirit agree in us, I pray that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds. We ask you most desperately this morning for sanctification in our lives. Change us, transform us to conform more and more to the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the perfected work, the finished work of Jesus that now resounds and ripples out throughout our lives as we live in response to and in light of your goodness to us. 
Lord, we lift up our congregation. We ask for those who are in need this morning, those who are sick, those who uh, are struggling with recovery this morning. We ask you would give them strength, that you would bless them, and I ask that you would cause your church to care for them and love them well. Help us to be willing to humble ourselves, to speak to one another in our times of need, and to ask for help when we need it. For there is the work of Christ in your body, causing us to desire to do good works. I pray that you would give us the strength and the motivation as well to do them. Lord, I pray for each one of the kids here this morning that has to sit through a sermon once in a while. Lord, I pray that you would teach them by your Spirit. You would help them to have patience for understanding and that you would illuminate everything that you are teaching us by your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name we ask for his glory. Amen. Our passage this morning is the second piece reporting on the experiment introduced in chapter 1. And without stating the name, the author has let us know that he is assuming the guise of Solomon, the richest and wisest king ever known to Israel, uh, who has undertaken to find satisfaction and meaning in pleasure, toil, and wisdom. Now, right at the beginning of Ecclesiastes, he's announced his outcome, the findings of his experiment. It's all meaningless or uh, vanity, but we, we've looked into this word, and it's vapor, mist. It's the Hebrew word for vapor. And so it's, it's all ethereal, quickly vanishing. And so he announces with all, even the unlimited resources of Solomon that all his wisdom, accomplishments, wealth, and pleasures fail to produce the fulfillment and satisfaction that he desires. And so the clear implication is that every attempt at self-fulfillment, these things covering basically all of human action, uh, every attempt at self-fulfillment is hevel, that mist or vapor rendered vanity in our English Standard Translation, and is striving after wind, trying to grab the wind, futile, worthless. And one of the primary questions asked at the very beginning of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 3, was, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And that is answered here in chapter 2. Nothing. No lasting profit at all is gained through human endeavors to attain lasting value in pleasure, wisdom, or work. And this was summarized in the verse we ended with last week, Ecclesiastes 2.11, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Now you're beginning to understand why some interpreters are trying to explain away what Ecclesiastes says. Because it, it doesn't fit with our worldview. But it should. This is the Word of God. God breathed, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Not something to be explained away. So last week we started looking at the results of the experiment and it began by looking at the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge and the discovery was that God had confounded the wisdom and knowledge of men so that learning was limited in its ability to comprehend the meaning of life. 
And so failing to find meaning in his pursuit of knowledge, the preacher turned to find satisfaction in the good things of life, pleasures of both wise and foolish varieties. And even the wealthiest man that ever existed and had more access to pleasure than we could ever dream concluded that the pursuit of pleasure does not satisfy and is ultimately futile. One cannot live for pleasure because pleasure will cease to be pleasurable. Pleasure will not satisfy. It's now beginning in verse 12. The experiment continues with further reflections on wisdom, Ecclesiastes 2.12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. And so the investigation into wisdom, the same as we talked about last week, it also includes madness and folly, which is a way of describing how thorough the experimentation has been. Not only has he tried the way of wisdom, but he's also tried folly and madness. All the the philosophies, all the ways of thinking, from the wisest to the most foolish, he's tried them all. And if one like Solomon cannot find meaning and satisfaction in wisdom pleasure and accomplishments in his comprehensive pursuits, what hope does anyone else have in attempting the same undertaking? So the the author goes back to speaking third person about the king, and it's the last time that the Solomon persona will be utilized, but he's saying if someone like Solomon, who was given great wisdom, who had enormous wealth and legendary accomplishments, if Solomon cannot find uh, satisfaction, what hope do you have? The basic idea is, don't try to outdo me in this because you can't. The author is trying to save you and me the weariness, despair, and meaningless vocation of these dead-end pursuits. And so it continues, verse 13, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is a vanity and a striving after wind. In the final verdict on wisdom, it is that there is some temporary value, more gain in wisdom than in folly, because wisdom can help you navigate this world where the foolish walk around like a person without eyes. They don't even see where their next fall is coming from. Ultimately, though, the same thing happens to both of them. Death. Death is the great equalizer. Yes, Wisdom is better than foolishness, but the value is only relative because it does not last. Death makes even skillful and knowledgeable living meaningless in the grand scheme of things. Now, this is not uncommon to Scripture to talk about something having meaning, but not ultimate meaning. There are several things in Scripture that are considered to be good things, that Christians are also to understand are not ultimate things. So wisdom is good, but it doesn't change the end result. 
So in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21, uh, Paul tells Christians who are slaves, don't be concerned about it. But if you can, gain your freedom and avail yourself of the opportunity. So it is better not to be a slave. We can probably all agree on that. Because a slave has less freedom to spend their time as they wish in pursuing the Great Commission. But it is of no eternal consequence. God will accomplish his purpose even if a believer remains limited in their ability. So it's good. It's good not to be a slave. Then you can spend more time serving Jesus. But if you can't stop being a slave, that will not limit God. That will not keep him from accomplishing his purposes. You've not failed and thus God will fail. In the same way, in the same chapter, Scripture says that it is better to remain single because a single person has more freedom from worldly anxieties, how to please their spouse, and can be more focused on how to please the Lord. So as the slave would be better off not being a slave because they'd have more time to pursue the Great Commission and build God's kingdom, so also the single person would be better off to not have all the anxieties and concerns that come from being married. But there is no command for the unmarried or widowed to remain single. It is of no eternal consequence. Their limited ability will not limit God's purposes. In the same way, to be wise is better. But wisdom will not save you. Wisdom will not extend one's life beyond what God has decreed. We are not saved, church, by our intellect. It's not by knowing all the right theology. It's not by correctly stating all the doctrine that we are saved. We are saved by Jesus Christ. A free gift. Grace alone. So wisdom is profitable, but not ultimately profitable. It still falls under the heading of hevel. Things that are fleeting, quickly passing away, have limited ability. So wisdom profit allows us to succeed in life now, but the realization that the wise suffers the same fate as the fool, death, leads the preacher to question his lifelong search for wisdom and conclude that it too is hevel. And it's, it's not only death that frustrates the preacher's pursuit of wisdom. The intellectual's real hope is that we will achieve lasting fame and be long remembered for great contributions. Every academic wants to publish. Everybody wants other people to have been affected by the, the work of thinking that they've put into things. This too is hevel, vanity, and a striving after wind. The hope of the wise, that they might live in such a way to leave the world a better place, is foiled by death and the short memory of humanity. So while one might be remembered a generation or two, very few are remembered four to five generations, and nobody is remembered much further than that. The same sentiment is expressed in Psalm 49. I'm going to read verses 10 and 16 and 17. It says, For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. Now, there is hope 
also expressed in Psalm 49, as well as in Ecclesiastes, but that is not what the author is getting at here in our passage this morning. And I don't want to take you to hope too quickly, lest you fail to be disillusioned. Because the author's point is to shatter the illusions that one can be satisfied and find meaning in the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. We should understand that though we may enjoy pursuing wisdom and learning, though they have value for this life, it does not ultimately satisfy. It does not provide a meaning for life. And Ecclesiastes is here to debase us of all false meanings for life. To really throw it out there. To those of us who are already delusioned with this world are like, yeah, man, that's exactly right. You, you hear me. You feel me. And those of us who are still walking in illusions need to be debased of them. And so because of the way he lived his life for these pursuits, uh, verse 17, the, the preacher found only despair and it was a bitter pill to swallow. Life had, in effect, played a trick on him. You know, you search for wisdom and you're going to have a good life, right? But he realized that that only goes so far. And all his life he had thought that he was pursuing a grand task in his quest for wisdom, but he had been trying to catch the wind. His efforts were destined for oblivion. Now keep in mind that the hatred the preacher felt for his own life only accurately records his feelings at the time. Self-hate is not his final assessment. Much of Ecclesiastes is what we refer to here as the bad news that makes the good news good. It's only when our illusions are dashed and we see how futile our lives without Christ really are can we truly celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so far in the experiment of the preacher... We have learned that the pursuit of pleasure will not satisfy and that even learning and wisdom will not accomplish anything that ultimately lasts. Finally, he turns to hard work. Maybe he will find satisfaction in hard work. What do you think? Verse 17, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be the master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. So even toil is hevel. Hard work Can you believe it? The Bible says that hard work is hevel. It's like a vapor. Hard work and everything that hard work produces is like a mist here for a moment and then gone. One commentator calls this section the confessions of a workaholic. In our search for meaning and satisfaction, we exert all of this effort to get the next possession, which we will never really enjoy because we are working for the next improvement or item on our never-ending list of wants. Here, the myth that hard work and well-earned wealth validates life is dispelled. Instead, the restless ambition to achieve destroys families and leaves people in despair. They hate their toil even while they are consumed by it. Once we reach a certain age, we realize we won't be able to enjoy the fruit of our labor for long 
we often look to provide a legacy. You know, I, I'm not going to be able to enjoy the things I've built for much longer, so let's build a legacy. Let's maintain the legacy that will go on after my life. This, too, is an illusion. Hevel, a vapor. Statistics say that in 60% of cases, inherited wealth is completely gone by the end of the second generation. Who knows whether your children or grandchildren will benefit or be harmed by what you leave them. Who knows? Will they be wise with it? Nobody can tell. Not only that, but the author is not just referring to his heirs, but imagines a situation where a stranger somehow comes to enjoy the results of his labor. This is another reason that Solomon becomes the perfect example of what the preacher is expressing. Though he was the wealthiest and wisest of men, after his death, Solomon's empire was very quickly brought to nothing. 1 Kings 14, 25, and 26 tells us that a foreign army came into Jerusalem and took all of Solomon's treasure away from his son Rehoboam. In fact, all of the houses and palaces, military strength and treasure of Solomon evaporated so quickly that many modern historians question if his legendary wealth was almost entirely exaggerated. Now, we believe here that the biblical histories accurately portray historical events, but the point made by Ecclesiastes is that the result of all Solomon's hard work, guided as it was by his immense wisdom, was quickly handed over to another, someone who did not toil for it as he did, and he thinks of this as being very, very bad. Verse 22, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. If you strive to find meaning and lasting profit in work, to improve your life and the life of your family, you even cheat yourself out of rest. You are never off. You're constantly taken up with it. You might have clocked out, but your mind just can't shut off. Your stress and anxiety follows you home. What futility. This, too, is heaven. What is missed in all these efforts are the simple joys God graciously bestows as a gift. And this is how he ends. There is nothing better, verse 24, for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting. Only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Previously, the author has referred to everything that he has as something that he has attained or acquired. Toil for wealth, wisdom, and pleasure pursued in themselves haven't satisfied. Now, in a dramatic turnaround at the end, he acknowledges that they are satisfactory when they are gifts from God for our enjoyment. 
There is no profit in pursuing wisdom, pleasure, or toil, but wisdom and knowledge and joy are gifts. Food, drink, and work are all given by God for our enjoyment. Neither achieved nor planned, neither grasped sorry, or produced, the gifts of true pleasure are simply received from God in gratitude and savored for their own sake. For the first time in Ecclesiastes, it is made explicitly clear that living for heaven, for vapor, and chasing the wind is not only pointless, but it is sinful. It is only the sinner that God has delegated the bad business of gathering and storing up wealth. If we find ourselves in this situation where our lives are all, around, all about seeking pleasure, working hard to store up wealth, devoted to learning, and we're looking for satisfaction in those things, now in Ecclesiastes it tells us that that is sin. It is the sinner who has been delegated this task. And the ultimate uh, benefactor, or not benefactor, that's the wrong word, the, the one who ultimately benefits, <laughs> I can't benef- beneficiary of all their gathering is the one who pleases God. The one who pleases God is the one who will receive all of the things which are gathered up by sinners. The meek will inherit the earth. In fact, it's repeated throughout the New Testament that those who belong to Christ will inherit all things. And so some are in the process of storing it up, working hard, trying to find their satisfaction in these things. They're just freely given as a gift to the one who did not earn them. The one who has given up their striving after gain will gain an inheritance anyways. As Jesus states in each one of the Gospels, Mark 8.35, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. The point of Ecclesiastes is, is not that people get what they deserve, as though God likes good moral people and gives them nice things, but that God exerts sovereign freedom in imparting gifts. If we receive a good thing in which we can truly find joy, It can only come as a gift from God, not something that we've earned, not something we've planned for, not something we've procured. It's not the religious person who tries the best that he can. That's not the one who receives the good things from God. The problem for every single one of us is we are sinners, and thus we displease God. Only one person in all of history perfectly followed God's design and been told of God's pleasure, Jesus God said of him, Matthew 3.17, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The whole point of the passage is that the fulfillment and satisfaction for which we long are not the result of self-effort. All this self-effort, all the trying to please self, satisfy self with pleasure, even if it's in hard work or wisdom, things that seem like wise ways to produce and to to provide for oneself enjoyment and lasting uh, satisfaction, even those ways, even those wise ways of producing self-satisfaction are hevel. They will fail. 
But all of these things, though the satisfaction cannot be found in self-effort, are found only in our relationship with God and received as a gift from Him through the obedient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There is no satisfaction or joy found in the pursuits of pleasure, wisdom, and toil. No surplus, no profit or gain, nothing that persists through death, only in the gift of God, an inheritance in which we share rather than a prize we earn. And when we see the blessings of this life, then as a product of our own effort, they are very fragile and quickly lost. I feel like I have to protect them and guard them. If I have more things, I need better security because someone might want to come take my things. But not when it's seen as a gift. When we comprehend that they are blessings freely granted by a loving Heavenly Father, we are no longer afraid of losing them. And we can also enjoy them appropriately. So the Bible's not bringing us to a place where we reject all enjoyment and pleasure. It's literally teaching us how we can have genuine enjoyment and pleasure. It's telling us all the the things that lie to us through the commercials and seeing other people have them uh, tell us that they will bring satisfaction will not at all. They're hevel. But when we receive good things from our good Father and glorify Him in them, we can enjoy these things for what they are. Temporary tastes of the goodness of God. And finally, when we are in Christ, we are no longer consigned to futility in all that we labor for. Another great part of the gospel is that even our labor, our pursuit of wisdom, can have value, but only when we are rescued from the futility of this world. Any work that builds on the foundation of Christ and his gospel has true, lasting value. You want to take satisfaction in work? Don't take satisfaction in work that cannot uh, last, that will produce no enduring benefit for anyone. There is satisfaction in working alongside our Father who has rescued us from futility. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire." The smoke of our heavy labors, the smoke of our heavy pleasures, the smoke of our heavy wisdom will go up when the end comes. But whatever we have built on the foundation of Jesus, whatever we have done to build his kingdom, whatever we have done to fulfill the great commission which Jesus gave us as a church, will last into eternity. There is a reward, a satisfaction in work well done. A reward, satisfaction in building a firm structure. You know, if you've ever put together a fort with your kids, if you're a man, I can speak to that. I don't know, ladies, how exactly you feel. But if you put up a couple pillows and a blanket, you're like, all right, go have fun. But if you take some time 
and it's square. And it's a little bit solid, like I can put, you like, yeah, that's pretty, pretty straight, pretty solid building. You know, we, there is a, a satisfaction in something that's going to last, a satisfaction in something that has been built well. The Bible tells us we can have that, though all else is hevel. We can have that when we build upon the foundation that is Christ's, when we are seeking God's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the great hope which we have received in Jesus. I pray that the message of Ecclesiastes would hit us hard this morning. We would be removed from our illusions. Our eyes would be opened. Give us the wisdom in which to walk around with eyes this morning. Let us see the way in which everything that we have put our our minds to and our, our efforts into and sought for pleasure are ultimately worthless. But give us I pray the joy and the satisfaction of working alongside of our Heavenly Father to know the thing that you are building, the church that you are building, the kingdom that you are building. And may we devote ourselves to something that lasts, something that genuinely produces a reward. And because of that inheritance which we have been promised, which we have been invited to build with you, the inheritance which is your people to be enjoyed for eternity. Father, because that is already given to us as a free gift, I pray that we would be able to appropriately enjoy our lives. That we would walk in satisfaction, satisfied in you and enjoying the good things that you have provided. May we hold them lightly because they come and go, but we can enjoy them as they are granted to us. Because they are not ultimate things to us, because our ultimate hope is not found in them, God, we can hold them lightly and enjoy them while we have them. God, I'm so thankful for the things you have blessed us with. Thank you for family. Thank you for a church family. Thank you for the food that we get to eat. Thank you for chairs this morning, a sound system, good music. Thank you for all the things that you've blessed us with. And even if you take them away, If our satisfaction is in you and we're seeking your kingdom, it will not destroy us. We will not despair, but we will continue to look to you in hope because of the inheritance of Jesus that we have received a free gift, nothing we have earned. Do this for your glory, I pray, as you sanctify your church. Amen.